try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Uh, Tonight's special guest, Mr. Steve Fisk. Washington-based audio engineer and record producer and musician, uh, Pell-Mell, uh, Pigeonhead, uh, living history of rock and roll, all of these things, and uh, so much more. So excited to talk to this lovely, lovely man, uh, Mr. Steve Fisk. And um, lo and behold, here he is right now. Sir, how are you doing? I'm doing great. <clears throat> it's uh, so good to see you, man, and especially in these strange times that we live in. Yes. Yes, indeed. These are strange times and we are alive. <laughs> These are all good things. I, I don't have a regularly mounted camera in my computer because I have a kind of an interesting uh, double screen thing. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to work this out. So if I stare into the blue light, I'm making direct eye contact with the Internet. Exactly. You, you're just... You got your eyes on them, so okay, okay, <laughs> it works out fine. We'll we'll uh, we'll accept that. <laughs> well, you're you're avoiding eye contact. You're looking. I, I am. I look like I'm I'm just the shiftiest character because I'm looking this way. I'm looking that way. I got like a thing over here. I mean, the whole this whole operation. What I do is, as you might appreciate, is is such old school hardware solutions that there's like things dangling there. Here, this cross connects into that, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole thing looks like it's gonna about fly apart in any moment in time. Okay, groovy. It works fine. <laughs> so, uh, hey, uh, thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. So, there's a lot of ways that we can uh, start this off, but I think one of the most interesting things uh, in our conversations that have not been on air have been that you're basically a, a guy that has been around for several very important epochs of uh, rock and roll and music and can kind of cut through the BS to a certain degree of, of what what is considered fact, but maybe is more legend uh, and so on and so on. Uh, no, probably not something you think about every day, but I'm just thinking about the fact that, you know, uh, you, you made your solo debut in like, what, like eight, 1980 or something along those lines? Like it was, it was, it was 79, son. Okay. <laughs> we regret the error. <laughs> there are uh, very few, few few people you're going to meet that had a record out before 1980. 
And I used to like denigrate my entree into the music business because obviously uh, when you release an early record, you don't like it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But my brother pointed out the significance of the fact that it was out before 1980. And my brother is smarter than I am. And just to set, because there are younger listeners and uh, viewers of the show, let's set expectations accordingly. It was a lot different process to make a record back then than it was now, where it seems like everything is much, almost too easy, but much easier, to be sure. Well, you could get vinyl quicker back then than you can now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you were true about that. (laughs) That is 100% 100 correct. But uh, there was also less uh so so it seems like there, there was um not th- this glut that, that's happening now but the things that were happening were momentous but people were not uh, it, what i've when i've talked to folks it, it traveled slower news traveled slower to a certain degree like we didn't have the instant complete connection good bad and the ugly that we have today so to find out about uh, a band or or an act or record or whatever, it wasn't necessarily something that happened immediately. So, right. what was your experience with getting into music? What 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 turned Steve Fisk on to like, hey, I'm going to do this now? What was that thing? Um, boy, I've told the story a few times. You want it? Want me to? Uh, yeah, it's please by all means. I think it's interesting because we're starting at the beginning here. Okay. Uh... Well, um, there are several different versions of Wipeout, instrumental surf thing, but one of them had a particularly wonderful uh, voice special effects screaming Wipeout. And I had to have to find that record and buy it. And in my neighborhood, I couldn't buy it because it was on an LP. It wasn't on a 45. Was not the Ventures version, although the Ventures did a wonderful version of it. But there's that. Um, there was the whole giant cultural shift, uh, from the sixties moving into the seventies and as an early adopter of the Beatles, uh, I got to watch how they changed everything. Yeah. You know, so they would bring in a sitar and everybody would have a sitar. They would grow sideburns. Everybody would grow <laughs> sideburns. And I'm talking down to my substitute school teachers and the guys in the Unitarian Church and, you know, all the adults. And so I was going like, wow, this is very interesting. These are kids and they're ruling the universe. And uh, as most young people are, you're bereft of power. So I saw a power grab waiting for me there. And uh, my father was a school teacher. He taught at, at a junior high school in, uh, in Wilmington, California. And there was a band playing the prom. And my dad thought, my brother and I, you know, we had a band. You know, we were young, but we had some instruments. And he thought we'd like to see the band. Right. That band was the premieres. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew who the premieres were and they were on the radio and their 45 was on the stack of 45s. I would go look at every day when I could say one day I'm going to buy one 45. There were like 20 in front of me. So uh, seeing the premieres live performing to kind of a happy days audience, you know, with, uh, you know, clean cut young kids and 
crepe paper and fish hanging from the ceiling and uh Enchantment under the sea. Yeah. Yes, and and the premiers were wearing lapellas Beatles jackets, and they also still had their East LA haircut as well. So they were already like a beautiful collage of you know Los Angeles meets you know Beatles hipness you know. Right. And it's worth noting, <clears throat> lowriders and the Beatles had the same damn shoes, shiny <laughs> little shiny shoes, and uh, so so that's it. You know, that's it. Then no other reason to get involved with music than that. Welcome in. All right. So did you feel like it was something you wanted to do? Like when you when you were like, hey, I can do that. Or was it did it, did it come a little more uh, a little bit later? No, no. I said that's something we can do. And I wanted to be the keyboard player so I could distinguish myself from all of the guitar players in my life. Smart. It's still smart. In some ways, <laughs> in other ways, you have to spend a lot more money on gear. <clears throat> to even Not as much as drums, gear. though. No, that's true. But flash forward uh, to my junior year in high school, and uh, I auditioned for and was the keyboard player for a short period of time mm -hmm. for a proto-metal band that featured George Lynch from Dokken. <laughs> I had a George Lynch screaming demon uh, guitar pickup in my uh, old guitar and replicator, and I'm not sure I could pick a Dawkins song out of a lineup, but uh, it was a great pickup, I will say that. Yeah, well, and the point was that George had a Les Paul Jr. and a small Fender Tremolex, Tremolo, whatever the thing, and he could sound exactly like a record, right. where I had this crappy sort of uh you know surf organ you know and a little solid state amp you know and i wasn't really in a position to buy anything better so i got kicked out of the band within like a few months just because my gear sucked you know you really can't do anything heavy with a farfisa organ you know farfisa organs are wild but they're not heavy you know did i mean when i think when i think of rock and roll organ I've, i of course think of deep purple was that was that like on the on the dock under the agenda at all at that time? This is too early. This was before Deep Purple, but it was not before um, Steppenwolf. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. I like it. Who could forget Steppenwolf? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and uh, Goldie McJohn. Yeah, I knew his name, the keyboard player. I thought he was God. You know, you know, he had a Serapi and an Afro. And uh, and a B three, <laughs> you know. And any one of those things would be notable, but all three of them together, fantastic. I know it's a triple threat. <laughs> well, so did you? Uh, when you see folks, just because, yeah, you know, people with guitars, right? That that was that was that was the thing. But to like see when you have folks that are playing like rock and roll or weird organ and uh, organ styled instruments, like, did you kind of? latch on to them uh, like a little bit more just because you're like, ah, that's an interesting way to do that. Like what, what was your, what was your take on it when it was not, you know, rule books weren't set yet. Right. Do I understand the question you're asking me if I gravitated towards bands that might have interesting gear or something? Well, just in, in, in general, because coming at it from a keyboardist, uh, I think that there just were fewer, even examples of success or, uh, 
folks doing more interesting things with it. Because I'm thinking, like, you know, this is this is well before craft work or something along those lines, right? Like ways, right. like wh what did you see? Like who did you see that really blew your mind and made you want to like play and do interesting stuff? I guess maybe is the more logical way of answer of asking that. Um. Well, I just saw normal concert shit. You know, probably it was years before I would see Yes or Gentle Giant or anybody right. with interesting technology. Um, so, yeah, I was from the Burbs. And so my first concert was Led Zeppelin. My second concert was The Who, you know. Not bad. Not, yeah, <laughs> fuck you, kids. My first concert was Led Zeppelin at the Forum yeah. in uh, 1971. Yeah, what do you uh, got? Yeah. <laughs> they, were just, they were just playing... Uh, the immigrant song, you know, I don't think it existed yet as a record. They they, they opened with the immigrant song. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> was it a pretty, um, was that a pretty good show? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have an opener. They just played, you know, this whole thing with a drum solo in the middle so everybody else could take a break. Uh, they, they were sloppy as hell. Uh, allegedly, Jimmy was high in DMT or something like that. This is all from the history books. Right. Um and while we're talking about monumentous events, um, this record, the concert I went to was one of the first bootlegs, uh, Led Zeppelin Live on Blueberry Hill, much of which was included on that uh, big CD thing they put out in 2005. Or, How the West uh, Was Won, I think is the name of that. Bunch of live. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. So I was at that show with my little brother and, uh, and, uh, and then I remember getting the, the the bootleg record and going, oh my god, they were much better than this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so so when you saw and they were Led Zeppelin at the time, they weren't the new Yardbirds as they were for their no. uh, early tour, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, we and we all had the record. I mean, the first first Led Zeppelin record. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was an alpha, you know. Um, and then the Who. Well, I'm just gloating here at age 67. <laughs> the Who live at Anaheim Stadium, which is actually one of the first times Anaheim Stadium was used for rock events, I understand. Fantastic. And who opened? Uh, John Sebastian, Blues Image, and the Los Angeles premiere of Leon Russell. Wow. And That's cool. Well, and at that, at that point, you know, I was a keyboard player, and I knew Joe Cocker had a badass keyboard player. I remember walking around the arena. This is boring. I know this is boring, but you're on the internet. No, no. So for you. It's the internet, believe me. No, nobody's bored on the internet, Steve. It's okay. <laughs> I just kept thinking, this guy sounds like Joe Cocker's keyboard player. Mm -hmm. And he was. <laughs> Lo and behold, he was. Yeah. Lo and behold, he was. So you could even through the horrible PA system at the Anaheim Stadium, you could recognize the piano as a piano, and recognize that. Oh my God, this sounds like that Joe Cocker record, feeling all right or something. Right. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and that that might be a place where we could talk about keyboard. That and actually, Blues Image had an amazing keyboard player, and they were almost a prog band. They were playing in odd meters and things like that, and. Uh, Nobody gave a shit about them. They opened the show, and I thought they were great. I thought they were really, really good. Right. Well, some 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 bands capture the intention, and some bands don't. And it almost seems like it's as much luck as anything else back then, as much as now. I'm guessing they were drug dealers. 
um, they started in Alaska and ended up in Florida. Wow, that's you would be hard pressed to stay within the United States of America and end up in further, further yeah. different regions. <laughs> well, I'm just assuming they had something to drive from from Alaska to, to Florida. Yeah. Although driving from Alaska down is a interest. I think Joe Preston did a did a tour once where he drove up to Alaska, like like you know, pure Joe Preston business to do that. It's not something any sane person would probably attempt. I know. Well, I see, and that for me distinguishes Blues Image from many bands. You know, they didn't come to LA to make it in the music business. They went from Alaska to Florida. So then, you're you're seeing these bands. Do you have like a moment that something clicks? You're like, oh, this is this is like my thing. This is what I want to do. Like, I want to like be involved in this forever and ever amen like do you have like an epiphany i guess is what i'm saying well no i had a long-term fight with my dad mm. so i didn't have room for an epiphany i was uh, <laughs> i was just fighting with my dad about this and my dad's a wonderful dude he just cared about me and he didn't want me to be a musician or he wanted me to have a backup plan right or as i <laughs> my, my dad was busy giving me advice about like these are the shittiest things you can do for a living and still make money <laughs> you know, learn how to make breakfast. People always want breakfast. <laughs> like, right, right, right. right. You know. That's true. People do always want breakfast. Yeah, no, my dad, he wasn't stupid. Uh, he was smart. He, he didn't want me to be a musician. So, so then that's a that's a joke answer. Uh, but it is revealing about my upbringing. So perhaps it was useful. But an epiphany, an epiphany. I got to see amazing quadraphonic Morton Sabotnik performances. Mm. Those were happening before I left Los Angeles. And uh, quad was beautiful. It was very exciting. Quadra, quadra, quadraphonic. That's uh, people forget now. <laughs> and, uh, and Buchla synthesizers are really oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. And I, 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 I knew ARP and I knew Moog and I actually had a job in the music store, uh, showing people how to run the mini Moog and the ARP 2600 and all that stuff. And then I heard a Buchla and I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy that he sort of got written out of history to a certain degree, because I mean, the Buchla is incredible. I, I uh, know his son uh, who played in that band, the Meishi. And I had no uh, idea. And I, uh, well, in the early Meishi days, they actually used a Buchla and then they became too much of a pain to, you know bring with on tour like they're you know they're, they're not exactly made to be transported around so he had a big modular bukla yes <laughs> it, it was a, it was an oh. aesthetic to be sure but but then of course as the band kind of became more popular the shows became livelier it's like yeah maybe not have this one of a kind instrument in a place where you know some punk rock kid could collide into it if they bounce around wrong yeah but I got to meet the man. I got to meet the man at a, sh I think at a show that we played with him. I can't remember, but uh, I, I was like one of like three people that knew who he was. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> that guy, that guy's, you don't know who that guy is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All your favorite synth players do. <laughs> Very nice well, fella. Very soft-spoken. Well, and, and, and his synthesizers weren't about, you know, redoing classical music. No. You know, all respect to... to Wendy Carlos, who I also was very inspired by at the time, 
but yeah, the Buchla stuff, it was completely LSD thinking. They were trying to make something new that wasn't tethered to the 12 note scale and all this shit. So, so, and that's how I ended up at Evergreen, by the way. So I suppose the Morton Sabotnik moment would ultimately lead me to Evergreen where they had a, an amazing Buchla studio and KAOS radio, which was, um, kind of one of those significant radio stations when independent music was starting to really become a thing in America. Yeah. So, so in there, there's some zeitgeist, but it probably lasted a long time and I'm very low, <laughs> not very exciting zeitgeist, but, but it all kind of worked, you know? Well, there's a place for the freaks, nerds and weirdos to congregate and, you know, uh, have a place to a certain degree. Right. And that's always necessary. And some of those people are lifelong friends. There you go. <laughs> I'm here at the end of my life and talking directly into the camera. Some of those evergreen people are very, very important to my life. And uh, my studio is just remodeled and acoustically treated by a good friend, uh, Peter Randlett, who has a full-up modular uh, Buchla system in his house. And is... Uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so that and Steve Peters, you know, I've stayed friends with my good friend Steve Peters for years. He and I were in bands together back then. Bruce Pavitt, for God's sake, I was in a band with Bruce Pavitt, you know. So maybe your zeitgeist happened at Evergreen, you know. It seems, it seems like there's multiple epochs of time that Evergreen was basically making some pretty cool stuff, you know, or, or providing the environment for people that are very creative to, interact with and collaborate with each other. Well, and as much as I still was going to play in bands for many years after Evergreen, Evergreen where I started, that's where I started thinking about what I wanted to do long-term. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> the college radio station in particular, um, without getting into the nuances, uh, it was all about independent music and, and not saying independent music is better than you know, corporate music, but corporate music's easy to find. Independent music isn't. And, sure. and that is probably the beginning of me in my record producer ethos, you know, and, and just understanding that it doesn't even, style doesn't even matter. <laughs> Methodology is what matters. Right. And that, and that's, that's a change in even uh, understanding music as much as, as producing it, right? Like, you know, like, you know, how, how things fit together, why certain things are a certain way. It's, it's a different, it, it seems like it's going to be a completely different mindset top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was the radio station. And then this amazing magazine that came out of uh, the radio station, it was called op magazine. Tape op magazine has got a vague lineage to the title. And Op Magazine is why Bruce Pavitt came to Evergreen, you know, uh, to start Sub Pop, you know, because Sub Pop wasn't a label originally. It was a cassette fanzine and a regular fanzine and all this other stuff. So the radio station had a bunch of very interesting people working there. Many of them worked at the magazine as well. And the magazine interfaced with the world. I mean, that's how, that's how I got a, a postcard from the Lemon Kittens in 1981, which just made my day, made my week. You know, I got a nice sure, yeah. from the Lemon Kittens. You Why know? wouldn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so do you think that, do you think that 
being at Evergreen sort of shaped your idea of community, like and what a music community or creative community can 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 be, like the the possibilities therein, I guess. Um, the, a lot can happen. Yeah, for sure. It was the idea that yeah, maybe not an idealized community, but the potential, you know, in situations right. with lots of potential. So, as we established, coming in. 79 sorry Kona neutron was wrong it was in, it was in 1980 uh is when you when you first kind of first kind of came out of the gate what, what was what was the plan there because i know you uh there was the the biafra um the the, the uh let them eat jelly beans is what i'm thinking of uh, yeah. as well right Conan, do you want to tell the audience who's on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, or should I? <laughs> like, freaking everybody. I mean, <laughs> go <laughs> drop what you're – stop listening to this and watch that. I mean, there's Flipper, there's Flag, um, Dead Kennedys, obviously, Circle Jerks. Bad Brains. Yeah, the Feeders. Feeders. The Feeders. <laughs> Voice Farm. The Bee People. Jad Fair. All right. Uh, half Japanese. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, incredible compilation. Like, just like one of the all times. Uh, like, I consider that one of the gold standards of a compilation. Oh, actually. Right. <laughs> when I met Peter Buck. Uh, really red. Really red's on there, too. Forgot yeah. about that. When I met Sorry. Peter Buck, who I really respect and all this, but I was really getting sick of people moving to Seattle in the 90s. And. The person that introduced me to him kind of fucked me, you know. He says, oh, Steve, have you met Peter Buck yet? And this is when everybody had met Peter Buck. <laughs> everybody had met Peter Buck. And I wandered in on a Scott McCoy show where Peter Buck was playing beautiful big guitar behind Scott McCoy. And so I was standing around talking to my friend who remained nameless who said, oh, Peter, here's Steve. Steve, uh, tell him tell him what you do, Steve. You know, and so I looked that carpetbagger in the eye. And I said, I was on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. And Peter Buck does not deserve my ire, but I was mad at my friend. I wasn't mad at Peter Buck. But... The flex. But in the goddamn 90s, I was on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. Okay? Which is pretty pretty cool. <laughs> like, not, nobody else in Seattle was on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. Yeah. And Seattle is all about punk rock and how punk we all are. Yep. Okay. So I'll say it one more time, or you can just imagine I just said it one more time. <laughs> so, and of course, the album title uh, comes from uh, it's like a play in words for, uh, first of all, there was this guy called Ronald Reagan, youngins. Uh, yeah. And then, <laughs> and he really, much like the doctor, uh, like Jelly Beans, although Jelly Babies are slightly. And Marie Antoinette. And Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette, yes. And I'm throwing that up mostly for Forrest, who helps me out on the show, and I'm on his movie show because he, he shoehorns a reference to Ronald Reagan in almost every episode. So that's, that's for you, Forrest. So. By the way, by the way. We're all talking about Neil Young these days. I want to point out that Neil Young is a Reagan supporter. He's a conservative. Yeah. He's the kind of conservative we can all talk to and won't go nuts with a gun. You know, we're all afraid of conservatives nowadays. Conservatives are okay. It's just the fucking terrorists we're worried about. So we don't get political, but yes, Neil Young, godfather to punk, uh, <clears throat> is from Canada. And he has, dares have an opinion about American elections. Right. He's a pretty inscrutable character, too. Like, he's sort of, you can't quite nail him down because there was the, I mean, he was he was against 
you know, elements of the Iraq war and did that, did that one song. Uh, that was pretty good. That was, I don't, couldn't remember. Well, and, and Poor Dead in Ohio. Thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can, you can slop for the rest of your life. That, that came out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. did. What did you do? I wrote Ohio. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And he's got like dozens of those kinds of moments. Right. Yeah. And also there's, you know, you gotta love the, the, the dicking around with Devo stuff. And like the fact that that guy is just, he likes likes music and likes pushing the boundaries. Trans, holy crap! Trans, what a great record! Like, what a bizarre, but great record. Yeah, no, no, I, I learned a lot listening to Neil Young records. Well, he's great. I only mention him just because some young people are afraid of Republicans right now, and you know, yeah, and it's, it's complicated. It's a complex diaspora. Yeah, 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 and it's it, it used to be that wasn't all encompassing identitarian thing, but whatever. Mm -hmm. We that's a that's a different show, and I have strong we don't have time to fix these problems. Exactly. Like, We're not going to sort out for protonic reversal. That's not that's not the place to do that. Uh, but uh, so that's it. All right. So you, you're on. You're on. Let them eat jelly beans. When do you end up falling in with uh, Pell Mell? Like that's a sh fairly shortly after, right? Like a year later or something like that. Yeah, uh, I mixed uh, their live cassette when they were a three piece. They made a, a live a cassette out of a live performance mm -hmm. for this tour that they did across America, uh, and I mentioned that I would like to be considered as a replacement for the guitar player that quit. And it was, and they actually had been talking about, well, if we were going to replace the guitar player that quit, maybe we should talk to Steve Fisk. So there was the zeitgeist. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Replace the guitarist with the keyboardist. Like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, shortly after that, I moved to the Bay Area and was part of Pell-Mell's um, feeble attempt to take over the universe between 1982 and 1985 uh and we um and now it's been documented the scene was over with an 81 the san francisco scene so we moved there in time just to watch people <laughs> wave and for it to be over all right yeah it's... shut the door on your way out <laughs> yeah. hope you have fun in san francisco i sure did <laughs> yeah, right. exactly when i remember it i did yeah yeah um and that was uh you, you guys are like living in like a single house, like in the same in the, in the or something along those lines, right? Like all of Metallica and um, and and whatnot. Although three of them were, I wasn't. I don't know how you found that out. <laughs> it's not really available on the internet, but uh, people was... people talk to me, Steve. You understand this? <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. No, you got a microphone right there. I'm sure you've been talking about Pelmel behind Pelmel's back this whole time. Uh, yeah, 283 I, episodes of it. Three? Yeah, no, no. Uh, they had a place north of Berkeley. I forget the, the town. If I had a map, I, 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 it's either oh. Albany or El Cerrito. I think I think it's El Albany. Cerrito. El Cerrito. There we go. Uh, El Cerrito, Spanish for the Cerrito. <laughs> People get so mad at me when I say that. Like, it's not what. It's not what that is. It's like, That's the joke. That's why it's a joke, people. Uh, but El Cerrito. I used to practice in El Cerrito. That, that's maybe one of the reasons why I know this. And famous for not much, but Credence is from there. The Fogarty's went to high school there. So home of the bayous of El Cerrito, Credence Clearwater Revival. Well, and Green Day were just up the block. Yeah. You know, so. 
Yeah, and, and that Albany uh, and Metallica, Metallica, and, and Metallica. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So I mean, they got larger claim to fame than a lot of places. And, and actually, there's a really great uh, there's a really great venue there as well. But anyway, so Pell Mell, Berkeley ish, <laughs> uh, in early '80s. I mean, did did you like? Being there, what did you feel is a good is a good time and place to to be creative around that time period, or were you even thinking about that? Well, that's when I started producing people uh, a little bit. I didn't get to do it very much, but uh, no, I, I got to learn a lot about studios. Got to make some big mistakes, you know, uh, and waste some time. Feel really bad about wasting time, um, and. Uh, And, and Pell Mell's an odd fit in any scene. I think we were a particularly odd fit in the Bay Area. So um, I could have enjoyed myself more. That's I, I have regrets about just, um, uh, you know, things I could have had more fun with. And, and then they were music things. But, you know, outside of, you know, um, are, are greatly forward Pell Mell leaving the small town. Yes, and the blackouts had left Seattle and went to to Boston. The serious bands left their scenes. That was something that the serious people knew. So that was our attempt at being serious. That was my attempt at being serious. And none of the Olympia bands I was in ever wanted to leave Olympia. You know, they for lack of a better word, frat bands, lovable frat bands, but frat right. bands. Um, well, there's something about. You're always going to be viewed a certain way when you're from wh where you're from as well, you know, and, and some, sometimes that can mean a lot of things, right? That that can be good. And if you're like hometown hero, hey, why go anywhere else at all? But if you unwound, okay, yep. Calvin Johnson, okay, you know, lots of examples of that, uh, the air in that thinking, you know, for sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe I could have made more music if I stayed in Olympia and, you know, hunkered down and built a home studio and. You know, married a marry a, a local girl and you know raised a family. <laughs> I don't think I would have done that, but path not taken. No, whole sliding doors of the world there you're developing. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all you know. Well, ultimately, the world came to Olympia. Yeah, it's gonna say turned out turned out okay. It just was you know a little bit later. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But uh, God, the people in San Francisco that I met and the people that were part of my life, and they were just wonderful and very welcoming. And um, I got to go on the radio a bunch and play records and talk about the Olympia scene. And uh, Was that CalX? Was it that? CalX and KUSF. Yeah. But, oh, KUSF, of course. Yeah. Well, how soon they forget. Yeah. Right. The exactly. they being me. <laughs> Great well, station. Yeah. Ray Farrell was our manager and he had a show in KUSF. And Ray Farrell's also a very wonderful old long term friend. Um, I don't know. Do you know who Ray Farrell is? Even on you had 280 shows, do you know who fucking Ray Farrell is? <laughs> Ray Farrell. Uh, that name sounds familiar, but are you talking about is uh, actor? No, no. Uh, a radio DJ. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, 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 an A and R man, okay. A uh, 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 music tech guy, uh, and uh, and and also retail. You know, very few people that have long term careers in the music business that started in music stores, right? 
So he was at Rather Ripped Records in Berkeley. Oh yeah, Rather Ripped. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's a little. That's a little before my time. I, I moved to Bay Area in '95, uh, and, and I lived in the cultural hole that was the Central Valley, <laughs> completely isolated from anything remotely interesting to me. So there's a wide swath of things that I missed by a couple of years. Yeah, well, that's okay. You probably that's did okay. some some fun things. But anyway, yeah, Ray uh, was uh, uh, at SST. Yeah, he was at Geffen. Uh, he was one of the original Maximum Rock and Roll DJs, you know, with Tim sure. and Ruth yeah. Schwartz and Jello Biafra and everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then lots of other small record labels. And I could talk about his corporate gigs, but he's, he's still got his finger on the pulse for being as old as me. And I uh, have incredible music knowledge. Going going club hopping with Ray Farrell at South by Southwest is the most fun I have ever had because he's just got a list. Okay, we got to leave. It's over here, you know, and then you go in and there's, oh, a bunch of guys in Harlequin outfits playing light-up xylophones. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, we got to go over here. And, oh, here's a Peruvian singer with a backup band, and they're singing uh, a, a Doritos commercial that I... As one does. Time. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no, uh, anyway. Such was the style of the time, yes. <laughs> yes, as one does. Uh, so anyway, uh, I could talk about all the amazing people, Johnny Myers, John Gullick, uh, Jeff Brogan, Gary Clayton. They're just names, but these are people that were all important to me then and very welcoming and did me favors and hooked me up and all this shit. So the Bay Area was great. And, uh, and I got to live on the top of Knob Hill. Shared an apartment with three people, and that's awesome. that was like up the block from the Tonga Room, which is a, a, a tiki bar that rains inside. Yeah. So these are the wonderful things about the Bay Area. Yeah. yeah. And there's a few of them left. Excellent. <laughs> not many, but a few of them. A few of them are not, have not been taken over by the Borg. <laughs> yeah. A lovely place for Dropbox to party. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you're, 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 so you're there, you're there for a few years, uh, and then you eventually make your way back up to Pacific Northwest, and you record that first Screaming Trees. Right. Uh, what's, like, how, how, did, how did that all come to pass? Did you know uh, the, the Connor brothers at a time, or? Um, that record I put out in 1979 that ended up on Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, I... Uh, put a couple of them in the record store in Ellensburg that was run by my good friend Tim Nelson. And uh, Mark Pickerel bought one and wrote me a fan letter when I was living in the East Bay. And so when I got back up to uh, uh, Ellensburg, I said, where's this Pickerel fellow? And uh, he was working at the video store. Do you know about the video store in Ellensburg? I do not. 180 shows. Do you know anything about the video store in Ellensburg? I don't. Okay. I feel like I should, but I don't. The Connor brothers' parents owned a video store back when everybody was buying video stores and making that mid-80s thing happen. And in the back it was of the a, it was a very viable business plan at the time. Like that was it's weird to think about now, but uh, anyway, all the screaming trees worked there, and in the back of the video store was Lee's home studio and the Screaming Trees rehearsal facility. And that's what's pictured on the backside of the clairvoyance record. Oh, cool. Awesome. So that was a whole special place where all kinds of shit happened. Yeah. 
I would, I would imagine so. I mean, that's probably probably wasn't boring. I would imagine. There's a great prank joke I could tell you if we, if we want to kill some time. <laughs> I'm not worried about killing time, Steve. But you're both. You can tell any jokes you like. Well, um, SST had a Xerox machine, and they used it quite liberally. Hmm? So everything official from SST looked like it had been Xerox 17 times, and had right. all kinds of interesting patterns. And some of it was hard to read. Uh, and because I worked at this recording studio, all kinds of crap showed up in the mail, including uh, a letter, a song sharking company. And for $500, they would put your record out with other top-selling artists, and you'd get these copies of it. Kids, this is what we had instead before independent music. We had vanity presses where people would pay to put their records out. Yeah. And so it was this completely awful thing. You had to pick the style of music you did. It was either country western, gospel, rock, acid rock, religious, you know, just like these horrible things to fill out this contract, right? Right. So the Screaming Trees were expecting a contract from SST. And so I took the song sharking contract, cut out the masthead of SST, and made a Xerox of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, brought it to the video store, uh, which, you know, Lanigan was working the counter. No one was in there. And I gave it to him and then I went and looked at videos and I got to watch Mark kind of scratch his head and what the fuck and, and, and eventually he figured out it was a joke and I told him it was a joke uh, but I didn't realize that they were going to run with it so uh, Lee was in next he was in an hour later and so Mark went to work in the office and Lee came in and said hey SOT contracts here looks pretty good check it out so got to watch Lee kind of all excited as the SST and then you know, the face just crumples. And, you know. <laughs> As you realize it's a put on. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. As you think that like, wow, SST are more fucked up than I even, imagined. <laughs> you know, like they, they've got the worst looking contract I've ever seen. And uh, where the fuck did they get this? And then you realize it's a joke. So there's a long period of tremendous disappointment because this is their big break. This is hand of God. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's SST. They were, that was, I mean, yeah, that was there was you know uh, God, I got I can't remember when Homestead was around. I was like real busy, like you know, playing with Star Wars figures or whatever. But like, uh, there weren't a lot of games in town, and, and right. SST was the one that was like that was the oh man, SST, right? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Van came in next, <laughs> and then Lee and Mark went like, "Hey, SST's contract series looks looks pretty good." You might want to have a look at the SSD contract, and then Dan went through the same routine. And, uh, <laughs> See, everyone got to have their, <laughs> yeah. their their time with it. <laughs> and I, I can't remember if Pickerel came in eventually too, but it was just wonderful watching them just, you know, fuck them their, themselves over. You know how how yeah. quickly you know I I was mean. They were meaner. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so so talk to me about talk to me about that that first EP. You know, into the first into clairvoyance and into into that first record, like those pre-SST days for that band. Like, how, so you was it clear that there was like something special going on there from the beginning? Like, you know, obviously, you know, you're you're hanging around your friends, but like, w was there a moment that you're like, oh, these these fellows are getting good, <laughs> or something along those lines? Was it was there a, a moment that like kind of struck you with Screaming Trees? They were very good live from the very beginning. They played really good. And 
they didn't really know anything about recording. So they set up facing the control room like they were on stage playing to an like a show. Yeah. Like a show. <laughs> and we set the mics up and uh, and then they rocked. They rocked like hell in the recording studio. And my friend Sam Albright, another uh, old friend who I'm still in touch with, he's the guy that built the studio and started the label and all this other stuff. And there actually was another band we were thinking about signing that was an arty, wonderful, esoteric weirdo band called the Entropics, featuring Amy Tenayo, another ancient friend of mine. We go way back. You've been doing 280 shows. Do you know who Amy Tenayo is? I, I don't. I don't. I feel Amy, like I'm on a very... Amy Tenayo. Okay. Yeah, she's in Culture Shock, done a lot of other interesting stuff. But the point of it was um, the Screaming Trees won just because they rocked. Yeah. So right there, at the very beginning, when we recorded the Other Worlds record, the Screaming Trees were rocking like hell. And Mark was singing great. One of the saddest things I had to do over and over again was erase the live vocal track because, you know, there wasn't room as an 8-track. So eventually we had to get rid of the live vocal track. Oh, wow, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's... You built the whole record. You opened up it all. I didn't know any better. I didn't know about bouncing it here or hiding it some way. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, what, so what struck you most about those early Trees days, like, uh, for them as a band? I mean, I think they had a very especially at the time, unique sound. I think a lot of people don't realize they were around as long as they were, too. Like, a lot of bands that kind of had that taste of Gold Rush success and people just assume there was no history behind it, which I've never understood that mindset. Yeah, no, they predate Soundgarden, you know, and have tons of records out before they ever signed. You know, that was um old man on the porch thing, but, you know, kids that just started a band and signed without ever putting out their first... 45 and realizing what a hassle it is having an independent <laughs> record label and doing things yourself. You know, they, they don't really understand what being on a label means because they don't know what not being on a label means. Screaming Trees knew what not being on a label means. And they also know being on a screwy label that didn't always, you know, do what they were hoping they would do. You know, uh, much respect to all the efforts of all the great people at SST. Uh, but SST had their hands full, and uh, yeah. and they loved the Screaming Trees at SST. But I don't know what stuck out. I don't know really. Uh, I don't know how they could all be friends, but then also have such a terrible time communicating with each other. You I've know. heard stories. Yeah, yeah, and just just the act of recording a song that went from E to A to B to A to B to E to A. You know, it was just a matter of counting how many times, and and it was like, no, it's an excuse to argue. You know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> follow your bliss steve follow your bliss yeah. yeah and also by this point i recorded um three sisters uh back in 1980 the visible targets okay and uh somewhere in there i realized that recording people that were related was hard to do because they, they have that previously existing you know <laughs> One one can hope would be affable relationship, but so frequently is is just various levels of oh my god, should I leave the room or should I like you know break these people apart or what's you know who knows? Yeah, right. No, they, you can't fix something that's been wrong for eleven years, fifteen yeah. years, or whatever. You know. And wrong, I mean, but an argument, not a there's anything wrong with the screaming trees, but. Uh... There's just a lot of deep-seated everything, and it's you know, and to a certain degree, it's one of the reasons what probably why they 
that play together so well, right? And yeah, yeah. And they were very appreciative. They were, they were, you know, having, you know, all these things thrown in front of them. And, you know, uh, I, I think uh, something that's totally pre-internet, right? But uh, that's a stupid way to put it. Uh, <laughs> well, but, we all but, live on it these days, Steve. I know, I know. I'm on the internet right now. I feel You're like. on the internet right now, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's one thing about, like, being able to, you know, go and tour with bands that they, you know, respected and dug their records and all of a sudden they were peers and all this other shit. But, you know, by the time you've made two records, it's like you're having to live with mistakes that everyone's listening to. Yeah. And so you get to the third record and you get very self-conscious because you're in Ellensburg. And then it's all over the world. So you work on the record for X amount of time in Ellensburg, and then you have to go out on the road and support this record and stand behind it and put up with how weird it sounds, because those were weird-sounding records, and they certainly weren't Seattle-sounding records, you know? Right. No, of course. I mean, like, and and this is, of course, before, you know, the, the again, the gold rush, right? But, like, still, like, there already was, you know, a certain yeah. type of sounds of, uh, you know, the Sonics or, you know, like whatever, where you, you think of Seattle. Right, right. And there were a few moments where I really thought they sounded like Dino or Dinosaur Jr. sounded like them. Right. And I found out that we were using the same tape machine and all kinds of other funny stuff. So I, I uh, but yeah, they were kind of happening at the same time Dinosaur Jr. were happening, you know, just for reference. And yeah, they happened all by themselves. And Bruce Pavitt was always very happy to see the Screaming Trees and loved their music and uh jonathan as well but uh you know they were on S sub pop for you know an ep and then you know they were on sst and then they got signed so they didn't really have much to do with seattle except that they played there and were friends. <laughs> right that, that they were you know seattle adjacent yeah <laughs> you know more or less which of course to like the world at large you know they wouldn't have any idea necessarily they would the one would be any different like you know if you're if you're in new york portland seattle those are next to each other right it's like well not exactly right no let alone ellensburg or something right <laughs> well and and you know being from ellensburg you know seattle's where you went to buy records you know or yeah. maybe you go see a concert there or something like that you know i don't I don't think they went to see Black Flag, you know, in 84. <laughs> you know, I think they were too young to get into clubs, things like that, you know. Well, and it, it seems to me, again, from the outside, that the, uh, um, you know, there, there, was something, there was something special going on from the outset, even though, like, I think they kind of finally honed what they were as a band. And... You know, like I, I, it's clear there was something from the beginning, but I think by the time you get to, you know, by the time you get to clairvoyance, it's like, oh, okay, so they're kind of leaning into like what they're doing well and kind of grinding hard at it. Like it, it, it still has like, you know, it, it sounds like them. It doesn't sound like a band trying to sound like a thing. And anyway, like it's got, you know, the psychedelic sort of element, but it's kind of garage rock, but it's them. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, uh, I, I can't add anything to that except to agree with you. <laughs> well, and, and that's a record that, you know, I know, you know Kim Thiel's a big fan of that record. 
that's a, that's a record that has its has its has its boosters. And so, can you say anything for that record? Were they still doing the like play and play at the control room thing there? Had they sort of figured out a little more? No, no, no. I I'd figured my thing out a little bit, so I figured out there were better ways to set up in the studio and ways to get better isolation between the instruments. And and I was making other mistakes, you know, because uh, I was learning my craft. Um, but no, the songs were good. Sometimes, you know, there were some that were clearly, this is the one they wrote on the way to writing this one, mm-hmm. you know, things that, you know, had, had similar structures and things like that, but it didn't really matter, you know. Uh, psychedelic music has an awful lot of repetition in it, you know. It's kind of baked in, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think for being a young band, I mean, Pickerel was the first person to, to quit the, the Screaming Trees. I mean, later he was kicked out, but he, I think, God, am I allowed to talk about all this dirty shit? By the time we did Invisible Lantern, he was really trying to do some interesting things as a drummer and some different things as to, you know, how to, he was tuning his kit. He was trying to do some other stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think there was, um, uh, part of the band really wanted to just get better at what they were doing and they didn't want anything new and they didn't want to hear new ideas. And so, yeah, Invisible Lantern, there was a, a lot of uh, aesthetic arguments in Invisible Lantern. And, you know, when someone wins an argument, someone loses an argument and that's always, you know, you have to get past that, you know. And by that, at that point, of you're course, making a record, you know, right? Exactly. You're exactly you're making a record. So, so at that point, and I don't want to skip it too much because I, I think the, I think if we get to Invisible Lantern, we're get, we're gonna miss the fact that there was the split beat happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is one of one of the more like, yeah, <laughs> like elements to to folks that like weren't there because you would not think of those two bands being in the same world necessarily if you're coming out from the outside but i love i love that that happened that ep that one off and Uh, i didn't record that lee recorded that right yeah okay so you know yeah i got to mix it but they did that all by themselves in the behind the video store you know i think that there's uh so and of course and then and since we invoked sst earlier at at that point uh screaming trees are actually on sst proper and uh yeah. you know like i think it was it uh, even if and especially when i think it's the, f- the first one on sst if i remember right right that's still my favorite record that's a good that's a great so fantastic record let's talk about that a little bit because and that's the you know it's still roaring like it's still like like a ripper but like it kind of seems like they were sort of sharpening sharpening the points yeah, I, I think there are some pretty cool bridges and things like that, and and uh, they were letting me fuck shit up a little bit, you know? <laughs> which is exciting when you're the producer, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, we we had a a, a sample of uh, I think it was my friend Sam I mentioned earlier. He dropped the lid on the dumpster out front, and we made a recording and put it into a primitive sampler, which isn't in this room, but it's not too far away. I still have this Akai S six twelve. But um, that's uh, the beginning of transfiguration. It builds and builds awesome. and builds, and then there's this explosion. The, the big, the big crash, yeah. <laughs> Which is also the explosion on crashing through by Pete Happening. <laughs> if you got a good crash, use it, man. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm big on reusing samples. I'm, you can find that uh, 
in a lot of my productions. You know, I fall in love with something and it'll be on a record for the next five records I do all have the same bomb or the same Octagon Bill or something. I was, this has nothing to do with, with that record, but I was, I was listening to the first Agent Orange record yesterday, just out of like, oh, I haven't listened to this in, in, in forever. And I forgot the, the one song they, they didn't over, like there, there was one, uh, the cymbals sounded messed up. The mic was wrong, whatever. So anyway, they overdubbed it with a trash can lids. <laughs> and it's so like, I just hadn't, I hadn't heard that record in so long. And, and, and like I was, and I was, you know, don't really like that. it was taking the groceries in or something. And like that part came on and I just, I fell on the floor laughing because it's the most absurd uh, song. There's a living in darkness is, the, is that record, but I don't remember oh, why, they, why they have the trash can. It, I, I want to say it's because when they recorded the original symbols, like something just what like didn't sound good or like the mic was placed wrong or something. But yeah. They did trash can loads instead. Uh, anyway, <laughs> production right <laughs> so you're starting to sort of spread out more into the production realm at this point like you're 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 trying out different ideas you're you're feeling comfortable with getting the basics so do you have any buddy that you're sort of looking at as a template for you know, cool things that you can do, you know, like, like thinking of like, you know, Visconti, you know, like those, those records, things along those lines, or are you just sort of like, ah, I'm just going to do whatever sounds good and, and away we go. Well, there's a lot of weird shit. You just learn at evergreen, you know, with, you know, flipping tapes upside down or working at different speeds. So obviously uh, I must've heard things like that on Beatles records and records of the time frame, but, uh, uh, that was just what you did when you went into a recording studio at Evergreen, you know, that was just, there was a knob, you could slow the tape machine down, you know, things like that. The other world's record was, uh, the songs were too high for Lanigan to sing. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So they got through with the whole record and they were about a step and a half too high for Lanigan to sing two steps. So we slowed down all the takes. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> and so, then and then we sped them back up uh, so, so so what you're hearing is mark lanigan sped up so he's on, <laughs> on the very first screaming trees record he sounds like he's 15 he right was not he was 21 or yeah something, you know but uh, yeah yeah but he thought it sounded hysterical so that was uh that was that's, uh, that's pretty awesome <laughs> i kind of love that well especially because like I feel like the the trick of oh yeah hard to sing tune it down a half step you know I feel like that's pretty widely known now but not necessarily something that was in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, and we don't need to talk about anybody's funny books or anything. Uh, but <laughs> nothing was more fun when when everybody was was laughing when everybody was in on the the thing and and Mark Lanigan is the most infectious wonderful. Irish kind of it's a party now. Mark's happy. Mark yeah. came out and we're all having fun and uh and it was a thing we'd wait for, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't always like that. And we weren't there to for fun. We we're there to record. But when when Mark was legitimately entertained by something, it was it was wonderful to watch. It was beautiful. 
I've had him on this show, and I had a few people be like, "Oh, you're having Lanigan on? Watch out!" I'm like, oh, okay. And oh, I but, bet he was a gentleman. He spent like half the show laughing about like just like ridiculous stuff. It was awesome. Like, yeah, I, yeah. Was, you see, that's great. That's why we don't want to talk about the books. The book, no one really understands the books. I think there's some kind of Bukowski performative thing going on there. You know, uh, that that that's a horse of a different color, and we we do not in any way, shape. We or don't have time to fix any of that. Exactly. Exactly. We have, we just don't have time. We'll fix it in post. Not. But it's it's hard to be everybody's friend. But I like to think I am. You know, I, I love those guys. I still still in touch with all of them. You know, I got to work on some records for Pickerel. That was a gas. You know, I got to play on Lanigan solo record. That was a gas. You know. That's right. Uh, that's um. A I think, winding sheet. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a that, that's a good record. I mean, I I. I I don't think he's made any bad ones. I think there's there's some I certainly favor more than others, but uh, I don't think no, no, no. Mark, Mark's a gr- great in the studio, very consistent. There's a few where it's like, wow, top to bottom, that's that's astounding. And there's always at least like one or two, like that's a really great song. That's dude just wrote a timeless song on this record. That's fantastic. Oh, and if you're a songwriter, I mean, gosh, and he's always pushing. You know, good for him. Well, good and he's, him. Got, he's got that gift. You know, he's got the voice. So. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. The, with the singing in that Lanigan cat. Yeah. Well, and Pickerel's had a pretty amazing solo career. Yep. You know, you know, uh, I, I'm in, in awe of where he started and where he ended up, you know. Do you think that, so, so Pigeon Head is, uh, that's like early 90s, right? So you're very early 90s. Yeah. So how how does that that's to me that kind of seems like it came from the same world as what led to that era of like negative land and stuff like that, right? Like was it what was in the whatever was in the water around that time? Like people are, are like, oh yeah, you can check out check out what we can do here. Like we're using this technology to do things that you had to have like a rack mounted appliance to do before. Uh, is that accurate in any way, shape, or form? Well, Negative Land actually goes way, way back. They started They started off, yeah. And when I say Negative Land and the Zeitgeist, I think we all know what I'm referring to. Oh, okay. Um, well, there's a pile of things that got taken off the first Pigeon Head record. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not quite all the fun it started out to be. And it was a 50-50 um, thing with Sean Smith. So I wasn't completely unbound, you know. Right. Uh it was more like finding the things that we both were into. Uh and of course Sean was a big big Prince fan. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, yeah. <laughs> well, well you couldn't hear it if you listened to Satchel. Yeah, well, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But on the first pitch and end record, I got to hook him up through an, an ultra harmonizer, and he could sing chords, and he could sing a pitch down, he could sing a pitch up, you know, all these things you could do with harmonizers, and he knew the sound intimately because he knew the Prince record. So, right. yeah. So for us, it was more like finding beats we liked and yeah. uh, vocal treatments and. Uh, not a lot of keyboard playing on those records. A lot, just a lot of mono, dinky dink synthesizer things, you know. Uh, so, so it it's um, 
God, I never really thought of it as a free record. I never thought of it as a record where people were experimenting. It seemed like a, it was more about, you know, kind of abstract song craft. Uh, that's not a cop out. Word. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's like improv or anything, but just, just, I mean, there's, there's, but there's elements of, you know, like, you know, soul funk. Like, I, I think what, whatever it was, Portishead did later on, like those kinds of, you know. Oh, are you going to point out that Pigeon Head predate Portishead? Yeah, and did they both have that in the name? <laughs> I was alluding to it. Yes. Well, there's actually, it's in The Stranger. Someone's documented it and wrote the whole thing up. Oh, oh really? Are, yeah, know. no, there are some things on that first Pitch and Ed record that are uh, identifiable as trip hop, you know, but no one yeah. called them that. That, that term <laughs> didn't exist yet. I mean, it, it wasn't, yeah. you know. And, and I say that as I do like, I, I quite like Portishead. I'll, I'll... Me too. Yeah. And so did Sean. We love Portishead. We'd listen to it when we were working. Yeah. They were probably influencing us, but but we we started before them, and or who knows when they started? They they started in 1982, you know. Can somebody out there leave us a comment on the bottom? <laughs> when when Portishead started, I was just thinking. Well, I just I finally you hit like and subscribe. Please do. I'd never say that, but I should. You have uh, to say that. Passion, uh, passion of Joan of Arc, the the silent film. I I finally finally watched that uh, last week. And I was not aware that uh, because, of course, it's a silent film, right? So there, there's there's a soundtrack that goes with it. But the guitarist from Porter's Portishead and um, oh my god, I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name. And, and another guy that also has done stuff that that you would know uh, did a like a, a live uh, movies playing and and you do a score to it, right? Right. I, and I hear it's fantastic. That is not the version I watched. And I'm ex- I would I'm like I was like well, I now need to watch it again because I want to I want to hear what that score is because I think that I, f- I find that guitar player uh, Adrian Utley I think is his name super interesting I think he's a really like he almost comes from the Bronco school of like doing stuff with guitars you're like what exactly is that you know uh, and to hear that for that movie would be pretty great so anyway Passion Jonah work go find that out that's a Silent film. I think it's on the Criterion channel. If you have that, yeah, that was the Russian director. What was? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Dreyer. He, he did uh, the Potemkin too. What was his fucking name? Always had these beautiful portrait face shots. Yeah. Oh yeah, and like that, and especially for that one, it's just like, oh wow, that this is acting. Yes. <laughs> so direction, film, cinema. Anyway. <laughs> you know, ordinarily uh, so- I'd be typing, but when I type, camera shakes. <laughs> it's fine. We don't we don't we, we don't need to we don't need a real time fact check. That's for the okay. internet to figure it out and bitch to me about later, which obviously would never happen. I think that uh so early nineties when Pidgehead's operating there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in the Pacific Northwest. What what's uh what what's what's the, what's the scoop of the, for the gold rush, Steve? They they let the freaks and nerds and weirdos in for a half minute. Right? That that's a thing that happened. I remember when that happened. Do you think Timmy Moore is a freak or a weirdo? Do you think Sylvester Stallone is a freak or a weirdo? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're talking just... about the cast of Northern Exposure? Yeah. <laughs> Who are you talking about? Well, it seemed like nobody thought about Seattle until everyone was thinking about Seattle. Like it, it kind of seemed like from an outside perspective, 
it, it seemed like a very uh, sudden thing. Perhaps it was more of a slow drip. But well, well, here's a, here's a zeitgeist moment. Uh, I was in Ellensburg talking to Bruce Pappen on the phone. He'd sent me some more sub pop records. You know, that's how I learned sub pop records. I would get these funny colored vinyl things from Bruce and right. play them in the studio. And oh God, that doesn't sound anything like what the screaming trees sound like. Oh, yeah, whatever. Didn't matter. But I, um, when I got off the phone with, with Bruce, I said, is there going to be the who? Is there some band of all these bands that everyone's talking about that's going to be the who? That's going to be like bigger than all the other bands and they're going to make 20 albums and uh, and they're going to influence all these other bands, you know, and I was going, who would be the who? Would it be Soundgarden? Would it be Screaming Trees? Mother Love Bone? Mud Honey? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, that, actually that's the Mud Honey and Mother Love Bone existed to separate time frames. But the idea that, 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 um, you know, whenever True wrote that article, you know, for the Melody Maker, you know, it, it was obviously a lot of confabulation and, you know, and Everett doing his, his shtick and all of that. But I, it really got me thinking seriously, like, you know, in 88, 89, you know, it's one of these bands really going to be a real band. Right. You know, you know. <laughs> in the classic term. Yeah. yeah in, in, not in a, you know, it sounds like I'm slagging people that, you know, aren't big, you know, but, you know. Like one of those bands is one of these bands going to be one of those bands? Yeah, like a, like a cheap trick or a Zeppelin or yeah, Beatles, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I, before I ever moved to Seattle, I kind of was kind of like a little freaked out by the idea that you know one of these bands might be one of these bands. You know, <laughs> it's like you know it's right. a it's nobody else. Nobody else was thinking that. Just me. <laughs> Obviously, <that's laughs> nonsense. Really? Oh yeah. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, uh, when I got to Seattle, um, I don't know, what do you want me to tell you about the gold? I mean, I'll just tell you Seattle stories. I could bore you to death. Well, well so so I guess if you if you want me to get a little more, more pointed with it, I think there's been a lot of stories, movies, books, articles, you know, spoken word about like uh, what it was like being at Ground Zero. But as someone that was around and operating both before, during, and after, there's a certain amount of perspective that you can get from people that were there and that can kind of give you an idea of okay you know that was bs this is this is this was real you know that this this was ridiculous this was awesome you know just from, from a perspective of looking at it from you know 2022 like looking back to those times um Well, I uh, I lived in a co-op, and we had a somewhat famous restaurant in the middle of the co-op that went from being kind of uh, uninhabited to having way too many out-of-town people and hipsters and all of this other stuff. And it was sort of like a dirty dipstick of the scene at any moment. So you could go over there and have breakfast, and, you know, just when you're leaving breakfast, Sonic Youth come in. And you go like, oh, right. Sonic Youth must be playing tonight. And like, you didn't need the newspaper, you know. You could tell what was going on, you know, because people just like to hang out in this um, this restaurant. 
and uh, and then also like stupid social climbers that heard that this was the place to be. So we would have um, people that didn't have to worry about economics that would move to Seattle and hang out just to be part of our, our lovely scene. And they would wait in the cafe to see if they could meet people to come play in their band, you know, silly stuff like that. Um, there's a famous story of Demi Moore rolling over a friend of mine's uh, uh, a Vespa motorcycle mm -hmm. trying to park in front of this restaurant. So that's that's a zeitgeist. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's not an everyday thing for most folks, right? Well, and also this Vespa is something that was covered with chicken feathers and was barely functional, but Demi Moore ran it over or knocked it over or something like that, trying to, you know, park in front of the, the the hipster restaurant to hang out with their hipster Hollywood friends that have been told this was the hipster place to go, you know, yeah. where three years earlier there was gunfire and, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Same old story for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know how that goes. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the more ludicrous screwball things that just sort of let you know you know like like um and that would have been like to be more like around like what ghost or whatever was that that's not the movie of swayze right that that was like that was like 91 right something like those yeah but this would have been 93 ish you know when things were really heating up that's when that's when so like few good men like a few good men uh uh oh yeah you know we're 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 doing seattle history based on the career of demi moore that's a good way to look at it uh sorry go ignore that just go do whatever you were gonna do before that's fine i just you got me thinking about demi moore in uh early 90s which uh well there'd be things like you'd see tabitha's Tap of the Soren pushing your baby carriage around the Pike Street market. Right. You know, like, <laughs> right. oh, okay. That's unpleasant in some ways you don't want to think about. <laughs> Bless you. Uh, you'd see um, Kevin Bacon pushing his baby, you know, in a stroller, and he's being recognized everywhere, and he's freaking out, and he wants to get out of the Pike Street market with his baby as soon as possible, and obviously thought it would be cooler than it was and it, it wasn't yeah, yeah. as you can see a perfectly natural reaction to the bike place market yeah <laughs> i kind of always want to leave there immediately too the second i go <laughs> yes no no believe me I, I i don't mention i don't name any of these people uh it's great fun for 45 seconds to a minute and then you're like how can i get out of here right now uh, i got tired of seeing kennedy hanging around does everybody know who Kennedy is? Yeah, I've, well, I was gonna say for the for the older fans of the show, they're they're shaking their heads and everyone says Kennedy, like what dead Kennedys? Like, like no, 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 uh, <laughs> the MTV personality who was who is now on uh, Fox, I think, right? She's got her own show on Fox. She's Fantastic, just, um, good for her. She's an older, crotchetier Tommy Laren, you know. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm sure some people aspire to, yes. Yes, exactly. Well, that's a way to get paid. You know, she's I, you know, hey, you know. don't knock the hustle, I guess. I know. would much rather have had Matt Pinfield hanging around than, than you know, Kennedy. Matt Pinfield actually seems like a legitimate fan of music, which yeah. 
you would yeah. think it would be a prerequisite to being an MTV personality, but I assure you was not for folks that were not there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, what, um, I worked in a recording studio mm-hmm. and I had a friend who went on to be a pretty serious engineer, but he was a metal head from the suburbs and he recorded those kinds of bands, which happened right alongside everything else. There's never been an absence of hairspray in North End metal bands in Seattle. <laughs> Some of them are from South of Seattle. Many of them are from here in Tacoma. Right. Um, but I got to hear this one band go from sounding like uh, just a hairspray band to sounding like Alice in Chains to trying to sound like Mudhoney and Nirvana. And he even had a scream worked out, you know, like a fake Kurt Cobain. Oh, you know, yeah. One of those things. And this is all just through the wall because I was working on some doubled sidewalk, you know, in Studio B or right. Studio A. There was all this hairspray and all these guys that, you know, I know that a year ago they would tell you how much they hated Mud Honey and when they were talentless people. And it's like, oh, well, Mud Honey are a good fan. I really like Mud Honey, you know, you know. So, so you got to see people eat their words because so that that was mildly entertaining uh, <laughs> seem to be like oh no i always love them really but did you <laughs> did you really mm, okay sure yeah the, the the recording studio i worked at had a, a kenny g gold record yeah and a violent femmes gold record oddly oddly enough he was one of the engineers there actually recorded the first violent femmes record so it was a big deal to hang up the uh, nirvana gold record you know of course yeah which is uh I was gonna say, just out of view, I think, but that's just out of view. But that's fine. Don't worry about it. Trust yeah, me, it's, it's there. It's, it's there. It's we Canadian, by the way. It's, it's not a real gold record. It's a Canadian gold record. Canadian gold. That's a that's like Italian platinum. Well, it just means that the 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 bar is lowered significantly. <laughs> right. But it's much more polite about it, so it works out well. Yeah, I got no complaints. I'm very happy with my Canadian gold record. But uh, but anyway, yeah, it was just funny to see Kenny G, Violent Femmes, and Nirvana on the same wall, and uh, and and of course the entire cast of Northern Exposure got to see that every day because they did all their dialogue replacement at the recording studio. I worked oh, at. okay, all right. So at night you would run into the Hairspray band that was trying to sound like Nirvana, <laughs> and the daytime you'd run into all the people from Northern Exposure because they were wandering around bored to death waiting to their adr so they'd actually wander into different studios and so what are you doing in here says oh we're working on a nordstrom ad you know says oh what's yeah. that like so well, we have an announcer in here you know. yeah 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 <laughs> well it's funny it's weird I, I don't feel like people understand today donors like northern exposure was a big deal that was a big deal show at the time like that was like everyone was talking about northern exposure and then I feel like I feel like Twin Peaks, which I quite like, has like somehow maintained, you know, maybe it's through through David Lynch, but maintained through the years as being like, oh, that's culturally important. That's Twin Peaks. It's like, well, Northern Exposure was a pretty big deal, too. That was like, I guess everybody knew that show. Like, that was just like a show that everyone knew. I'm sorry, I don't know the actors names, um, but the tall guy that played the DJ. Mm hmm. He went to lots of shows. You saw that guy a lot? I can't remember. And, there, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> and the little guy that played the Native American, mm-hmm. he was really cool. He went to a lot of shows, too. He he and I were on a, hey, how you doing, kind of 
right. thing, you know. Uh, and uh, I always got a good vibe off of him. And uh, the old guy that ran the bar, he was wonderful. He was oh, fun. nice. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I'm blanking on names. I'm usually yeah. pre- I'm usually pretty good at being name guy, but I'm failing it tonight. So. Well, and I do. I'm lucky to keep up with bands. I can't keep track of actors, but th- that guy was amazing. I mean, he did uh, that whole tobacco thing and Mad Men and all of that. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting who kind of stuck with it and kind of became better known for like other shows and stuff like that. You know, that's uh, yeah, it's weird how that goes. Uh, so talk to me about so that time period. You, know, you work in the studio. There, there, there's sort of like there, there's a lot of zeitgeisting that, that's happening. Yeah, the geist was just in there every day. <laughs> you guys need anything you know <laughs> um and who who you're recording around around that time uh, so that's um Soundgarden, nirvana mm-hmm. screaming trees love battery beat happening some velvet sidewalk reverend horton heat um is that enough yeah it's pretty good yeah. <laughs> Gorilla, Gorilla were a wonderful garage band from uh, well from Seattle, but they're uh, they were on Estrus. I got to do a wonderful recording for Gorilla. Um, I think Estrus has been like removed from history. Like that was a like I don't understand like why either. But that's how I knew what Bellingham, Washington was. <laughs> yeah, I love I love Bellingham. Yeah, no, no, they 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 were great. And uh, God, was it uh, in Stephen Toe's book, The Strangest Tribe? He talks about. Uh, Seattle turning into garage rock or something like that. Like the grunge thing was quickly abandoned. And yeah, I think he was talking about super suckers and things like that. So he's trying to draw his own, you know, his own version of how it all came together. So I don't know. No, Estrus fits in all that, but Estrus were there all along. I mean, they were always putting out stuff. They were doing their thing, you know, and like it was, it was was a a strong ethos. And, And that's something that, you know, I think a lot of record labels strive for, and they, they don't quite get there. Uh, unwound, obviously, did a lot of unwound then. I, I was gonna say I, I was I was going I was going to get there eventually because uh, how could we not? Um, that's yeah. how I know you. I mean, before I knew any of the other bands, I knew you from recording Unwound. One of yeah, the, well, one of those fantastic bands of my generation. Yes. Yeah, well, and the early stuff, you know, uh, was really, you know, I mean, they were just kids. Yeah. That was um, when Stewart had opened the first Avast, Stuart Hallerman, another Evergreener. Uh, so I was just giving you all the music source work because I worked at uh, Cheap Studios too. And at Avast, yeah, uh, Damien Gerardo and the Tree People, thank you. There's somebody else that I'm Tree people. Out about, for Christ's sake. An- another band I would say would be written out of history, but I feel like people kind of st- are starting to realize maybe a little bit. But yeah. Tree people were that. That was. Tree people are very important to musicians. Mm-hmm. The tree people records are, you know, kind of guitar lessons, you know, or something like that. I mean, there's just so much, you know, great stuff that happened to the tree people. Um, and this is, yeah. So the, you know, kind of other Seattle shit. That's terrible. I'm, I'm. There's probably something just trying to get through the wall here that I'm... Well, well yeah yeah well before we before we dive in because i do want to get more specifically into the animal discography what do you was there a record around that time that you're like oh wow this is really great i can't wait for people to discover this and 
and fall in love with it. That just it where it didn't happen. Uh, every time, <laughs> every, every single record, every record is that record, you know. Yeah, yeah, understandable. That's that's an exaggeration. Uh, yeah, I thought Love Battery could have been bigger, you know. I could I see it. Love yeah, really good, you know, and. uh and I still think the Screaming Trees don't have their due. Thank you. You know, I would know. agree with that. And, and I say that as someone that I kind of I, I work backwards with them. And I think I kind of undersold them when I when I first heard them, because then I went back and listened to those earlier records. And I was like, oh, this band rips. <laughs> like, I didn't realize it was, you know, the one song in MTV is fine. It's it's, you know, that was a good tune. But it's like, oh, there's way more here than just that. Yeah, well, they made a different kind of record when they, you know, had more time, and 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 so the records we did were done in a hurry, you know. Although some people would argue about that, but uh, and also they were mostly live. You know, a lot of young people don't understand the importance of live tracking, you know. And just for the record, uh, I record everything live, and I try to get the singer to do you know, a scratch vocal just so there's something in there. And then uh, you do four takes and pick the best one. And if you have to edit something on to the end to make it work or redo the beginning, you do that with a tape edit or a, you know, a digital edit or something like that. So I'm not that great that I get it at all within four takes. But if it's not happening on the, you know, you don't want to end up in take six, you know. Yeah, it's probably not going to keep getting better. Yeah, you come back to it some other time, you know. Yeah. And maybe you figure out what's wrong, you know, because for me, I I figure out a lot of shit when I stepped away, you know, and I go, oh, of course, they need a click track to connect the bridge to the last chorus or, you know, whatever, simple shit like that. Nothing brilliant, but but, but sometimes there's better ways to record things. So, so yeah, the uh, the juice you get with, you know, three or four people playing live in a room, you can't fake any other way and i'm obviously preaching to the converted here you know this that that, that <laughs> good practices in the recording studio not that there's anything wrong with david bowie doing blow and putting records together one overdub at a time <laughs> and forgetting that he made certain records yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, I was like, those I are good that? records too it's like yeah it's and great oh, okay <laughs> and 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 pigeonhead for christ's sake it's a total of uh studio assemblage you know there's yeah nothing live about it at all except you know, really great singers so so it's it's all you know with caveats and all of that but yeah the the early screaming trees records sound that way because they're on uh half inch a track which was uh uh, uh, uh an anvil <laughs> that right. many bands you know hammered flat on in the 80s i mean you know, <laughs> Junior, mud honey early nirvana early, you know everybody was on a on, you know, who's Cardew? You know, everybody was on a half inch eight track. You know, that yeah. was the pro sumer deck. That was a name you don't hear anymore. Pro sumer. You know, do you know that term, pro sumer? I've never heard that term before. What is what is that's that a consumer? Mean? That's something that's almost oh, pro, but also consumer. Okay, yeah. okay, I, I see. Okay, I get it. It was in the name all along, and I just didn't realize yeah. it. Yeah, I was pronouncing it wrong because I can do that. 
but but anyway, yeah. So 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 everyone can draw their own conclusions with why those early Screaming Trees records really stick out as yeah great takes and lots of room sound. It's a beautiful room, very high ceilings. And I was always trying to cram more room sound into it, you know. <laughs> You know, I do. I do. I, I wanted to to dive a little deeper with the Unwound discography, but before I forget, I'm not sure why I came to this, but uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Butch Record by Gerald and Pibbers, and I think that's wildly underrated record. And I think they're a very interesting band that you know, one of the ones that maybe not quite got, ever got their due necessarily. Not oh, that cool. I mean, Nels is doing fine. Don't get me wrong. And. <laughs> No. But as a band, Geraldine Fibbers was was astounding, you know? That's my best work. People I love that record. People ask me what my best work is. I point actually both those screaming both those Geraldine Fibbers records really um we spent a lot of time on them. And it means all of us. I mean everybody in the band was really involved in the production yeah. and the overdubbing and and also, everybody in the band was totally into Carla being the boss, you know, and, right. and letting her drive. But, uh, but as Butch and Ethel Lee Plow, which was a constant war of, of sorts, but I love that band too. Yeah. Well, and uh, I don't know much about that. I, I learned about that from the US and Butthead. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Butch is a, I mean, like, well, the, the, yeah, I, I, so I, let's put it this way. I like, and, I like... and Butch has live vocals with the band. Yes. And it has that, yeah. it has that live band energy because yeah. of it. Yeah. We actually, um, set the band up around the control room, mm -hmm. you know, out in the studio. And then Carla yeah. was in the control room with her guitar. So, awesome. so is the one of those magical things when the recording studio kind of turns into the, the PA. Yeah. You know, and no one can talk because there's an open microphone, and and uh, yeah, yeah. There's at least four tracks on Butch that are, you know, there's some overdubs, but it's a live take, and you can tell she's. Yeah. She, I mean, that woman's a powerhouse. I, oh like, my respect. god, what a voice! What a voice! Yeah. yeah, like one of one of those once in a lifetime, like wow, holy moly, what's happening right now? Like kind of voices, you know. I've been so lucky. I've recorded at least ten just world-class, you know, singers. I don't know why the Northwest was just filled with great singers when all that shit was going on. People don't talk about that, but, you know. Yeah. And people I start with Calvin. Right people laugh when I say Calvin. But, like, within, like, a four-year period, I recorded Sean Smith, mm -hmm. Reggie Watts, Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, you know, I, you know Mark Lanigan, Yep. You know, uh, you know, Doug March, you know, I mean, you know, just like, you know, they, they, they just land fully formed in front of the microphone and deliver. It's just crazy. You know? Yeah. When you have a moment like that, you got to kind of be like, oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> like, it's got to be kind of nice to to be there when you hear it hit. Right. I mean. One of my um, we, I'm, I'm assuming we won't talk about Nirvana much and that's fine. If you want to i mean i think it's been covered in other media oh yeah but there's this one moment and i haven't talked about this too much but uh when when i was setting up for nirvana i was new to that studio and so i'm much more conscientious about getting everything recorded right instead of sitting back and realizing what's going on and uh 
I believe that was the first time Kurt had sung into a Neumann U67. And, and he did it live with the band. That's There's three outtakes from the session that sound beautiful, uh, that have live vocals on all of this. And, and I was like over here and doing this and bending up, and I soloed up the vocal. You're like, yeah, that's doing everything it's supposed to do. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, that's a classic rock vocal going to a U67, and he's screaming yeah. and yelling, and it just sounds beautiful. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That sounds, like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that that yeah, works fine. Yeah, yeah that's uh, well, and th so that session was um, that was like uh, Benison, right? That's that that was one of them. Yeah. and uh, yeah. the, that version of one version of Blue. Hey. Yeah, I mean, it's. it's I not... did. I did. Yeah, I didn't do Blue. I recorded Benison, Stain, Even as You. Yeah. Folk and Eastern song and the electric version of Polly. That's right. even in his. By the way, even in, even in his youth, I think is a wild underrated song by that band. Yeah, and what a great take that yeah. I got to just hit the record button and go, oh, great take, you know. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. good. Keep it, keep it up, boys. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Oh yeah, that works. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, they're getting good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we we don't need to talk about Nirvana, but I'm just asking about the moments. There was a moment, I, you know. <laughs> that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, where, where you're, you're just like, huh, oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's singing good tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. okay, kid. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're doing that thing you're doing. It's pretty good. Keep it going. Yeah, that, 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 that thing you're doing, keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. whatever keep you're doing. Going, someone's going to like it. Keep at it. <laughs> You'll get there someday. <laughs> uh so okay so i i, I want to get back to unwound because again that that's that's how i literally how i know you but also how i well know and he's an amazing singer too jesus he started off hiding his vocals behind everything and by the yeah. time it was done he sounded like some weird alien trumpet you know? <laughs> no no in a, in a good way though yeah like, yeah <laughs> like well how could that possibly be bad unless you've got a bad relationship with your aliens which i you know. a bad relationship with your trumpet i don't know or both I don't know. yeah there's that too but yeah i mean that's a band that basically started off as like a a little weird hardcore band and they got kind of more expansive and cool until they you know basically put out one of the best records of the the, the decade that that came out in and uh, you know never made a bad record I was talking about that with a friend. Like it was like, oh yeah, they never they never made a bad record. Yeah, yeah, they made records that were less visible. But yeah, they were all amazing, you know. And they were all recorded in a hurry. They were very, you know, workmanlike. You know, they just, you know, I was the one saying, please, can we spend an extra three days on this record? Last record we got done in four days. Can we please spend seven days on this record? You know, <laughs> just give it a little, yeah, a little more love, maybe. Your label wants to pay for it. I want to do it. I'm not charging you any more money. <laughs> Can we spend seven days instead of four days? You know, so. I think that there's something there's something with that band too that even rings true for people that weren't there or or too young to be there. That like, and I say that when I you know have heard bands that very clearly have some unwound records in their collection. And it's, but it's, but it's like, oh, like that love is there. That love, that love is there for these records. And for kind of, you know, a thing that, okay, so 
what about Unwound? Oh, well, it's kind of like, you know, I remember having described me as like, it's kind of like if Sonic Youth is a hardcore band. I'm like, really? And I, then I heard it, and I'm like, it doesn't sound like that at all. But I get why the person said that, because there's this wild experimentation with the guitars, but there's this forcefulness to it as well. Even when they kind of laid back, there was a forcefulness to it. And I think that comes through. Well, and... um good unwound uh they're hitting the guitar and bass loud enough that mistakes are happening and the strings are you know banging against the pickups and they have that same kind of abandon that uh, you heard in early sonic youth you know where someone was aiming at the guitar but they weren't too worried about <laughs> where it landed you know yeah, yeah. It, it's it's some it's going it's going towards the guitar and it presumably will connect <laughs> yeah yeah but but some but you're thinking about something else you know it's uh, like vocals or I don't know, but uh, but yeah. Um, little known fact, uh, you know those wonderful Numero group compilations. I'm familiar. Yep. When I was starting the Car Seat Headrest record, Teens of Denial. Yes, Car Seat Headrest, Teens of Denial. Uh, I had an extra copy of the first uh, Unwound record, the white one, and I gave that to Will. And according to him, he rewrote the record based on listening to the Unwound record. Wow. wow. He, hadn't heard, he hadn't heard Unwound yet, and he was waiting to hear them. And he said, well, this was probably a good time. And that's my Will impersonation. That's pretty good. That's <laughs> pretty good, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, so anyway, uh, Unwound is much more important than, uh, than that. But that's an interesting thing, isn't that, it? That is good, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just like, uh, yeah, and it, it was years later that I heard the, you know, the, the record with, with Brant on drums, the, the first record, but like, just, just mission statement, Dragnalis, right? Just out of the gate, like, huh, that's new. You know, that's interesting. And then like, just have it, you know, strained to lucky ass and nervous energy, Valentine card, just pop, 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 pop. Yeah, yeah. Fake train was old bangers. You know? I, it, was, it was astounding. Like, I never heard anything quite like it at the time. And then, and then. Uh, you know, they uh, yeah, the other new plastic ideas slams that that was sort of like, hey, let's you know. Keep, well, keep I heard pell mell and slint. You yes. know, and they knew they did not know pell mell at all, so that they landed near pell mell without even knowing pell mell. You know? Right. <laughs> I remember that's, that's when pell mell was starting to record, you know, for Geffen. Mm -hmm. And I brought new plastic ideas with me, you know, back to Boston, and and the 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 dumb shit on the on the cover, the guitar player on new plastic ideas, yeah, looks like a young Dave Spaulding from Pell Mell. So oh, even creepier, <laughs> you know. <it's, laughs> I oh. showed up at the Pell Mell headquarters. Hey guys, check this out. And, you know, I, you know, uh, slight der slight derivation. How'd you find out about the uh, six feet under? thing like was that something that like you knew about did you did you like watch that show when it would have on i like that show a lot that's why i asked yeah but i was already in the sopranos at that point <laughs> exactly which is much more so my world was a much more of course, my other favorite hbo show wants my music of course right yeah, oh, okay. about yeah. Me. but i missed when i was on let them eat jolly beans <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly lead with that yeah. clearly why all of this is the world is unfolding for me in the 90s because i was on let them eat jolly beans <laughs> right exactly it's, it's a 
you know, uh, sometimes you plant seeds and they and they sprout later. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you know, there were only two thousand copies of that first Velvet Underground record. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what I hear. That's what I what I saw in the documentary Sorry, told me exactly too. nothing new, uh, but enjoyed anyway. Uh, about yeah. the Velvet Underground, I, I literally didn't learn nothing new on that. I'm like, this is good. I know all this stuff. And also, Doug Yule got robbed, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. I'm not even going to talk about the Velvet Underground. <laughs> I have no. I have nothing to say that means anything about the Velvet Underground. Please, let's forget we even mentioned the Velvet Underground. You know, we shall not speak of the Velvet Underground. So, no, no, so. no. Render under Caesar. I'm just saying that I I'm not worthy to talk about the Velvet. What yeah. I have to say about the Velvet Underground isn't worth hearing. <laughs> you know I mean, and when I say I learned nothing that I didn't already know, I mean because like you know I, I was like sitting there like an like an archivist studying like you know Sumerian or something like pondering the ancient texts, learning all about like John Cale and and Lou Reed and this and that. So of course, the movie's fine. The movie's good. If you, it, it, it's a good movie, it tells a story. I personally kind of w was hoping for. I, I felt the same way with the Stooges documentary. I'm like, I know all this stuff, but of course I know that kind of stuff. I'm that kind of nerd. That's why I have this show. But anyway, I, I'm still watching Get Back. I've been I, through it four times now. Okay, it had, did you, you? But you've watched it all the way through, right? Many times. Four times. So, uh, Quiddy from Type Rose was on. Was it last week? At least before that. Anyway, we had an extended section where we talked about Get Back because we like to cover the obscure stuff around here, of course. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, because no, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, one of the things I appreciated the most about it is with the live performance on the roof. How, okay, so the Beatles had the same experience that like a hardcore band playing in a garage would have that like they're trying to get the songs out before the cops busted up, but it's the Beatles. And I love that. I love that they showed like the split screen of like the cops trying, oh, we don't have the key. You know, we can't, oh no. You know, like all of those kind of like delaying factors that you do while they're playing on the roof. And pretty much every everyone is enjoying it, but the cops are just determined to shut it down. And I loved that that's, that's the ending of it. Spoiler alert, everybody, for the thing everyone's already seen. But yeah, like I, I thought that was such a cool, especially because as as many people have pointed out, so many of it's just like, oh, it's like every band having a conversation, except for it's the Beatles. Right. You know, there, there's like the, the screw around songs where it's like, oh, it's that song, but it's like with a funny lyric about something that's happening in the room at that time. Right. Okay. Oh, it's funny, but it's, that's John Lennon doing that, though. You know, I love oh, wow. watching them play the third man theme. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. guess. Third man's great. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Oh, we get this too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I will take it. I will take all that and more. I will yeah. you know, release the thirty-two hour cut. I'm in. I'll. <laughs> oh, completely, completely. Yeah. Uh, but we are not talking about the Beatles. I, I, I want to. While we still got some time left, want to talk uh, about those unwound records and just to me, what seemed like an exponential level of growth as a band. And and you were there to sort of help nurture and document that and use your skills, developing skills and develop skills as a producer to help them become their best self. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's a clear line of progression, you know, into new plastic ideas, like into um, uh, future of what and, and uh, repetition. Like it's, it's just a band that found its voice and, and did its thing. And 
you know, was it a thing where you, you had to push them sometimes or was was it all kind of? No, 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 there wasn't anything to push, you know, it's like, it's this song. And if there was something wrong, they would fix it. Yeah. You know, and they would have a quick huddle and do it again and then have another huddle and do it again. No fights to break up, you know. Um, I always felt like Sarah was indulging everything. Like, <laughs> and I love Sarah and she's such a talent, but, yes. but yeah, it was like she was in a band with these two guys, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't be trusted. <laughs> you know? fake train there's mistakes on fake train we let mistakes go by yeah 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 yeah. You never said that i'm just uh, wild underrated drummer too very very, yeah. very very inventive you can always spot the yugo burnham even if someone's getting yugo yeah. burnham second hand yugo burnham has influenced so much wonderful music he's somebody that does not get his due for all the due those guys get you know Hugo Burnham, it's like you can tell when someone's heard Hugo Burnham. Yep. You know, and I think she got it from Fugazi and, you know, the DC fans. And... It comes down to, I, I was, I was overjoyed to have him on this show and to, to nerd out. And that was a, that was a special treat for me. Not just having someone from Gang of Four, but basically the person that, yeah, that guy's just as badass as John King or Dave Allen or a Andy Gill, but like no or, or more so because he's just this human animal. Yeah. You know. Uh, but we're we're off of unwound again. I'm not trying to just yeah yeah. I was gonna say and and also you know uh, sidebar Paho's playing with in Gang of Four now, which for I Christ's sake for Christ's sake. I'm so stoked on, but like still trying to wrap my head around a little bit. Like be like I've been explaining to all my old friends. <laughs> this is a wonderful idea. You're going to like it. Yeah, you've never heard of this guy. Oh, it's it's gonna yeah. be so great. It's gonna be. That's gonna be amazing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. I have, I have tickets for at least two of the shows, and I just, I can't, cannot wait. Clear the calendar. Oh, and Sarah, for Christ's sake, you know, yeah. Sarah's just Sarah Lee's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But you uh, know, back to unwound. Yeah, yeah. the unwound <laughs> record, um, I didn't expect them to ever do touching, soft music. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Because they did not they, do that at the beginning. Yeah, and, and they're so good at it. Like Lady Elect. So oh, sad. It's oh. so poignant. Uh, and there's there's a lot of moments like that. Uh, what they wanted from me, besides someone to make fun of, uh, <laughs> was uh, the gimmicks. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they, they either wanted to do a gimmick, they had a gimmick in mind, or they had some place where they said, we're going to put something in a sampler and you're going to play it, or something right. like that and yeah, like the, like the uh corpse pose uh uh that little the synthesizers that, little that was my idea uh, that's awesome brief, briefly to recap uh we were doing corpse pose and he did the guitar overdub with that uh, angular single note line mm -hmm. and uh a sick part of my said if we double this with the synthesizer it will sound just like weezer it will sound just like buddy holly and uh, they love that idea yeah. that we're going to deliberately sound like Weezer for a minute and it, and it worked, but that that's one of the only things I could say, Oh, I've got an idea. Let's try this. Yeah. Uh, but I think laugh track had a bunch of crazy shit in it. Uh, and, um, God, I, I lose track of the titles, but yeah, there are all kinds of weird, 
you know, you know, Optagon stuff and the Optagon, obvious Optagon stuff, and okay. maybe not obvious Optagon stuff. And, and yeah, having that stupid ARP 2600 around, I mean, that got, that got used a bit, you know. Um, Heart Rave 2000. Does anybody want to hear that story? You know the story of Heart Rave 2000? I don't. Tell me about it. It's the EP. I think it's called the what the the trains in the tunnel. We see the light in the tunnel. Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. Okay, there was a new age uh, sort of therapist nutcase rave guy. Maybe he was not a nutcase, but he was calling recording studios because he wanted to record the soundtrack for Heart Rave 2000. And uh, on the answering machine, he would go into this long thing about what it was going to sound like and how about 15 minutes in, we're working with Earth energies and trying to get people in touch with their bodies. 20 minutes in, we're bringing in the uh, going up three BPM and we're bringing in eagle whistles uh, and brain sticks. And, you know, and it, and it was like I'd been at a vast recording another band and I was sitting in the, the office uh trying to get away from the other band. I forget what session that was. And the answer machine came on, and that guy just was went in. That, that was what was on the answer machine. Was that dude? <laughs> no, no, no. Three days later, we were working on the Unwound record, and the guy called that studio and left hmm. the same tape, left the same description. And I said, guys, let me tell you about this guy. Let me tell you about Heart Rave 2000. So that's, that piece was born in the studio. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> I was kind of wondering. I never, I never, it's not a front of mind thing. I never thought to ask, but like, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you think challenge could, it could have uh, been a little more baked? No, no, I, I was very happy with that record. I like it too. Some people, I don't know if I have the perspective. I don't know that you have, but uh, no, I, I have no misgivings on even the earliest records where some of the the things were done in a real hurry, you know. Uh, I think there's a couple of times I tried to do, you know, that Beatles trick where the drums are on one side and the guitar and the bass. Yeah, are on yeah, yeah. It was hard, hard. Pan yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I think that didn't work. I think we, we liked it at the time, but it hasn't aged very well. Uh, but no, man. I, I, I dig it, and actually, yeah. that's that's one that I think I I'm not sure I appreciate as much when it was when it came out, and I think I dig more now. Repetition was the buried record. That was the one that a lot of people didn't hear at the time. Really? Because it's funny because that's that's the one that I feel like in my circle anyway. That's the one that everyone latched onto. We're like, oh my god, this band is amazing, and I was like, yeah, where you been? I'm, <laughs> hello, <laughs> I was over here listening to these cassettes. Well, this is just something Sarah explained to me, and I think it had more to do with some tour dates falling through and some just snafus with a rollout of the record or something like that. Yeah. That it just kind of got lost in the, the world that was happening in. That's a record. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's, that's amongst our best, I think. I have a poster in the living room. Yeah. It's that much of a record, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Steve, this this is this has been so cool, man. Thanks so much for spending so much time with me. And uh, I hope it's been entertaining. Me. No, absolutely. And it's it's a uh, it's it's that kind of show. It's that kind of discussion. So, uh, last thing that that I'm going to leave you with. 
This is a can question. It's the only can question I ever ask on the show. But you can choose. You're not going to ask about the painting on the wall that looks just like the Pell-Mell record. I, we can. That's Kelly. I feel like we have to now. Go ahead. <laughs> That's Kelly Spalding. She's a wonderful yeah. painter. She was married to Dave Spalding, and she did uh, a lot of our our graphics and we use her painting it's beautiful i mean it's an aesthetic you know yeah anyway that's all uh, uh what your question so, so, your so can last, question. the can, can question i ask at the end of every show which you have never heard and that's okay but like uh i ask the same it's ask the same question at the end of it you can choose to interpret it however you like why do you do what you do oh all the Funny answers come up first, and you probably want a serious answer. It's your call. There's only a few places I get to really feel like myself. There's only a few times in my day-to-day -day world where... I can put things away and just breathe easily. And it's when I'm working on music, whether it's with other people or whether it's by myself and I'm working with other people. It's not exactly relaxing, but it's something I know how to do really well. And I would like to be doing more of that in the future. It doesn't seem to be part of my life right now. I'm very happy to be mixing as much as I have, but quite honestly, um, this is just totally selfish, but, um, those of you that have fires that need putting out in your brain have things you do to put out the fires. And uh, I get lost in my work, you know, and I've been doing it a long time. I really dig it. Um, I still work hella cheap, especially coming out of the pandemic. I cut all kinds of deals just trying to make things happen for musicians who weren't already, you know, having a hard enough time going out the pandemic. Uh, so, um, I guess I, I believe in people. I choose life. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, there's, this goes back to chaos. This goes back to op magazine, uh, where even if I'm working on a record that I would never choose to listen to, and there's so few records I choose to listen to because there's so much music in my life that when I'm not working, I don't really seek out a lot of music. But even if I'm working on a record uh, I would not choose to listen to, I understand its reason to exist. And uh, I have to do as good a job on that record as I can, you know, because everybody's voice is important. You know, uh, I, I came from kind of an interesting globally minded punk rock aesthetic where everybody had something to say and when you're involved in independent music in 1979 1980 you get to hear what people's day jobs are and then this is the music they make so this guy delivers bread every day or milk or you know works in a daycare center or something like that so he can go home and put this record out this 45 because he can't afford to make an album or something like that and you, i'm just talking in hypotheticals when you're nodding like it makes sense but but I, I I do I do believe that uh, even though we don't really have a music industry anymore, um, music is really important. 
you know, and it's it's lost its valence, it's lost its um its ability to to change the society, which is something interesting that I've seen happen in my life. I've seen music degrade to the worthlessness that it embodies now. And while we were talking about get back, you know, those are the first guys to make the cash register really ring, and it's all just been a slow descent oh, as yeah, music's no been more and more marketed, more and more spread around, and people tried to make more and more money out of music, and uh, you know, and that's okay, but you know, we know from David Byrne's book, people really weren't making money on music, you know, in the 19th century and the 18th century. It's a 20th century phenomena, and so when I I see everybody trying to figure out new schemes and things to bring the music business back, you know, and it's like, no, this is a good time for music for people. <laughs> that have, you know, this is all the money makers are gone. They're not showing up at your shows. This is, you know, a time to, to really be free with what you do and, uh, and to not follow cues, you know, and uh, I love working with the people I'm working with because, you know, by and large, you know, that's where they're coming from, too. You know, so. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I do this. You know, like some people get to be cops. Some people get to be soldiers. <laughs> you know, some people get to be nurses. This is what I get to be. You know, I'm, I'm very happy with this. You know, I don't sound like I'm happy, but I am. <laughs> you can you can hear the happiness in other ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I've got a band. I'm in the, this band with this wonderful Native American rapper, uh, Redskin, and we have an album we're working on, and the band's called The Grumps, and it's about senior entitlement. And, <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. I love it. And, and there's a lot of pot endorsement. It's a pot band, and our first uh, uh, swag is going to be slippers because those are important to old people. And, uh, <laughs> brilliant i love it yeah so and 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 yeah and i write beats it's, it's like pitch and head in in a way it's a rock thing that uses lots of uh lots of hip-hop elements and things inside of it but it's ugly rock music so there i am that's my shameless self-promotion but it's also wow. it's also that's what i'm that's what i'm stoked on right now i'm working yeah. on that and uh i have a couple of surprises some um 25 30 year anniversary work for sub pop and uh those those will be interesting records and you'll be hearing about them in 2022 well you'll have to come back in uh and talk about your new record and the new stuff you're working and all that stuff next time how about that well sure it's been a pleasure being here thank you for having me thank you so much for coming on steve it's been a pleasure oh and do you have those kind of dickwads that leave really insulting comments about my personal appearance? <laughs> uh, you know, luckily not so much. Usually they're bitching about my laugh, but uh, other than that, it's it's normally people are very well behaved. So you yeah. hopefully won't need to worry about that. No, I don't worry about that. I just find it fascinating that there's a whole little subculture that goes. Look at a one hour and twenty three minutes. That's where you can tell he wishes his band would have made it big. <laughs> like wow <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's that's very specific <laughs> yeah like, no all the time i wish my band would have made it it's not yeah, just yeah, no, that, that's, that, yeah exactly 
Uh, Steve, my brother, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have so, a good so night. Appreciated. Take care. You bet. Oh, there he goes. The man, Mr. Steve Fisk. Let's uh, let's hear an unwound song to uh, play us out. We're going to do, well, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to do Corpse Bells. Of course. <laughs> That's right. Come on. I had to do Corpse Bows. We talked about them doing the quote-unquote Weezer thing. <laughs> How can I not do that one? I almost did Battle Flag, uh, which, of course, is... Uh, everyone knows it's in the Sopranos, but, you know, whatever. Look, that it's probably going to copyright violation. Uh, anyway, th- that was Steve Fisk. What a cool guy, right? What a cool guy. Uh, the guy's done everything, man. I... Big fan. Can't tell. Well, thank you very much. 
for tuning in to this show. Go to Transportal Conversal. Thank you so much for listening to it. The show airs Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. RadioNope.com. Say yes to Nope. As well as yeah, Facebook Live, freaking YouTube, Twitch. It's crazy. It's crazy all the different places the show goes out to. It's nuts. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. If you like show manga episodes sooner, patreon.com slash Protonic Reversal. One dollar a month will achieve that goal. Of course, the show's no ads, no sponsors. No kidding. One dollar a month will get you there, though. One dollar a month. It's a bargain. Really. Uh, archives free. ProtonicReversal.com. Always. And whatever the hell people are listening to their podcasts or viewing them or beaming them into their implants in their skulls. Whatever's next, the show will be on it. <laughs> Still on top. Still on top. Thanks, folks, for liking and subscribing the show. Uh, that helps a lot. And uh, sharing the episodes around, that also helps. If you like an episode, share it with a friend. Share it with an enemy. Share it with a friend of me. Cool stuff coming up. Thanks for listening, everyone. Can you hear me now? Stay safe. Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. I'll take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. 
Radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? Got my radio. 